City Light Church. Um, if you got your Bibles, why don't you turn them with me to Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 through 40. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And while you're turning or scrolling uh, to Luke chapter 19, I just want to, again, thank you for joining us here at City Light at home. Um, we are in the church building in the um, Southern Cultural Heritage Center chapel as we normally are, but obviously due to the circumstances, uh, due to the times that we're living in, due to COVID-19, coronavirus, uh, we are unable to um, meet together with you in this space. Uh, let me just say, I can't wait to get back with y'all. I can't wait to meet again in this space and worship together. I'm so looking forward to that. I'm so eager for that moment. I'm, 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 I'm salivating, thinking about getting to that moment with you. And, and, and obviously it won't be this week, it won't be next week, um, but we're still going to celebrate uh, the resurrection of our Savior next week. And so we invite you to join us again online this coming Sunday where we will uh, virtually gather and virtually worship. Uh, we will sing together, we will uh, um, hear from God's word and preach God's word. Um, and, and we will certainly pray together as well as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. So even though there, the, we, we obviously long to be with you, we are doing everything possible to create avenues and opportunities to, to still connect with you, um, including this coming Wednesday. If you, if you uh, would like to continue our missional community family meal rhythms, we are doing that. We, this Wednesday, last Wednesday was our first one. This Wednesday, we will continue at 6 o'clock. Um, there is uh, information on our Facebook page uh, that you can connect through Zoom technology, which is basically a, a video conferencing technology, and that will allow you to connect with us uh, this coming Wednesday, and we would love for you to do that. We're also looking for some ways to plug into the community, and so there's some opportunities that are brewing as it relates to the, uh, the local storehouse food pantry or the United Way. Um, please just kind of keep your ear to the street, so to speak, because we're going to be discussing that probably this Wednesday as well, as well, as well as this Good Friday. We plan on having a special time of prayer that we're just going to dedicate uh, to pray for our country, to pray for our world, to pray for those that are uh, obviously impacted by what's going on with this coronavirus, to pray for people that are sick, to pray for people that are suffering, uh, but obviously to pray for our own hearts that we will be fixed on Jesus, fixed on his work, and fixed on uh, not only his death, but his resurrection during this time. And so uh, we will keep you guys posted on that. Please stay, uh, again, stay tuned to the Facebook uh, website and all of that, uh, all of those different social media uh, streams for information on that. By now, you've gotten to uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. Um, today is the, the day that the church traditionally uh, observes um, the where the church traditionally observes the arrival of our Savior into the city of Jerusalem for the last week of his life before his crucifixion. Uh, we call it Palm Sunday, and we will learn why we call it Palm Sunday in just a moment. But, but Palm Sunday is the story of an arriving king, but not necessarily the king that everyone was expecting. Um, around, around this same time, two years ago, um, the, the world was, was literally preparing for a royal wedding. Uh, all around the world, all around the globe, eyes were fixed on the UK. Eyes were fixed on England as we prepared for the wedding of Prince Harry and Princess Meghan. The wedding was lavish. It was luxurious. It cost approximately $42 million. 
dollars, most of it in security, but nevertheless, that's a lot of money. And yet, just recently in the last couple of months, we noticed something has happened with Prince Harry and Princess Meghan. Now, they're still together. They're still married, and they appear to be thriving, and we pray for them to thrive. But, but the unreal weight of expectations and the unfair piles of criticism that was laid upon them contributed to them literally resigning from their post in the royal kingdom of England. At this moment, they live in North America. They have a home here in the States and have completely relinquished their royal duties. $42 million wedding two years ago. Now they're not even serving in the kingdom. Sometimes even natural examples of royalty don't fit everyone's expectations for them. And if natural royalty doesn't fit everyone's expectations, we certainly shouldn't be surprised when divine royalty doesn't fit everyone's expectations. When you look to the scripture, what you find in this text is a coming king, but a king that's coming in a way that not many people are expecting. Looking at verse 28, it says, and when, we had, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage, Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt. Its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. We find in this text that Jesus is sending his disciples to fetch this unassuming animal to ride into Jerusalem as the awaited king. When they are asked about their intentions, they repeat Jesus's words back to the owners of this colt, this, this, this donkey, this, this young baby horse. And they say simply, the Lord has need of it. And the owners allow this to be an acceptable answer for one of at least three possible reasons that maybe we can come up with. One is that possibly the animal is so unspectacular that they wouldn't even miss it. Possibly Jesus knows the owners. But more than likely, at least in my opinion, is it, Jesus, in fact, is speaking divinely when he says, go and get this animal. And the owners are divinely made aware of the divine role that Jesus fulfills. And so they allow this animal to go with these disciples. A baby horse. A colt. A donkey, possibly. No chariot tied behind it. No, not even a carriage. Just a lowly baby horse, which has never been written on. Jesus takes this glorious historic moment in biblical history and human history to ride into town, entering the town as a king on a donkey. This says a lot about this king, maybe more than we realize at first glance. First of all, we see that this is a king who brings peace. It's been said that in certain ancient cultures, you can discern the intentions of a king based on what he rides in the town on. A king preparing for war would come in on a mighty steed, for example, a ferocious, strong animal that signal to the masses is about to go down. On the flip side, a king entering into a town on a less spectacular 
donkey or baby horse signaled one who came in peace. This, of course, is all the more interesting when you couple it with the very meaning of the city's name. Jerusalem itself means city of peace. And so this king, the one that we call the prince of peace, comes riding into the city of peace on an animal of peace. All of this should be a reminder to us that it, that, that it is in Christ and only in Christ that we have been given true, lasting, eternal peace. It was the angels, for example, who first declared that Jesus' arrival on earth. Glory to God in the highest in Luke chapter 2. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus himself promised us as he prepared to leave this earth in John chapter 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It was Jesus who also said to us in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, in Christ, we have a king who brings us peace when we submit to his reign by trusting him with our lives. In the midst of this great pandemic, isn't it good to know that no matter what danger or chaos it may bring into this present life, the eternal reality of all of those who declare Christ as king is, in a, is a reality of peace. Peace is not only the insight, the only insight, rather, that we receive from Jesus' entrance into town on this small animal. We also see in this moment that he is a king who brings peace, but he is a king who walks in humility. We are reminded in this moment that the ways in which the king establishes his reign is unlike anything the world has ever seen. This king doesn't enter into this town on a chariot. He enters into this town on a donkey. This king didn't enter into the world even, wrapped in royal fabrics, laid in a palace. Rather, this king enters into the world, wrapped in swaddling cloths and clothes, rather clothes, and laid in an animal feeder. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, describes this king in the following way. Philippians chapter 2, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count an equality with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by, come, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus traveled the path of humility to glory. We have a king who has shown the willingness to walk with the lowly and the ability to empathize with those of humble beginnings. Jesus shows us the roads to victory aren't always paved on the grounds of prominence and loftiness. Oftentimes, victory comes from the lowliest of places. But also, this young cult shows us that Jesus is a king who brings fulfillment. This moment is a moment that's actually prophesied of by the prophet Zechariah over 500 years prior to, its actually, to it actually happening. Here's how Zechariah describes the Palm Sunday moment or this Palm Sunday moment. 
He says in verse 9 of chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What appears to be an ordinary man on an ordinary animal is apparently anything but ordinary. It is the arrival of a king prophesied of long ago, perfectly righteous with the ability to bring salvation and eternal life, to set the captives free, to, be the, uh, to, to mend the brokenhearted, to find the lost, to bring restoration to anyone who declares him Lord and King, all while riding on a donkey. The people gathered didn't quite understand what to make of him, but they do know that there is something unique about him, that he is a mighty king. So not only is he a unassuming king, but he is a mighty king. We read in, in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he, that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those that are gathered have either witnessed with their own eyes the mighty works of Jesus, or they've heard with their, with, with their, with their own ears those who have witnessed the mighty works of Jesus. And so they are fully convinced as they gather at the entry to this city that they are providing a royal welcome to a mighty king. Maybe they heard of the healings. Maybe they heard of him stopping the storms. Maybe they were, maybe they were there when the water was turned into the best wine. Maybe they received one of the many plates that was multiplied out of that little boy's two-piece fish lunch. However they come to this, conclu- however they come to this conclusion, they are now gathered together to affirm his royalty. How many of you have ever watched the old school comedy coming to America? If you have, then you obviously know the story of the royal prince from the fictional African nation called Zamunda who travels to America to find his bride. And in this story, which is a very funny story, there's this, there, there, there's, there's this group of women who are assigned a task to drop rose petals along the way as the, as the royal party, the, the king or the queen or the prince, make their way from place to place. Their job is to place rose petals everywhere that the royal party treads. Everywhere their feet touch, a rose petal should be laid. Such is what you see on display in this moment in Luke chapter 19. It is a gesture to signify the entrance of royalty. These followers are fully convinced that they are in the presence of royalty, and so they perform an act set aside for royalty. They place palms and garments in the path of Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. However, they are not only convinced to perform a divine demonstration, they are committed to make a divine proclamation. They say, for example, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory 
in the highest. This is the king whom the psalmist sings of in Psalm 24 when he says in beginning in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, the Pharisees are none too pleased at this sight, and they seek to put an end to it by asking Jesus to stop it. They say in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, this king is so glorious that even the inanimate bears witness to his glory. In other words, this king doesn't need us To be glorified. If those with life won't glorify him, he carries the power to erect the lifeless to bring him glory. He will be glorified regardless of our decision to glorify him. You see, true divinity operates outside of need. God doesn't need us to bring him glory. You see, your silence bears no comparison to the resounding chorus of the universe declaring that he is worthy to be praised. Our inability to see him for who he is is not an indictment against his glory. It's an indictment against the dullness of our own hearts. The fact that we cannot be amazed at the beauty of Jesus, at the mercy of Jesus, at the power of Jesus, at the might of Jesus, at the love of Jesus, at the grace of Jesus isn't a reflection of Jesus' worth. It's a reflection of our own darkness. You see, if I were to take a man and offer him a dinner at a five-star restaurant, and he instead trades that dinner at a five-star restaurant for a value meal at McDonald's, we don't criticize the chef at the five-star restaurant. We criticize the man with the unrefined palate who rejected the opportunity to taste greatness. So the fact that our hearts are so satisfied by lesser things, must be evaluated in terms of not what must we do to make Jesus more glorious. It must be evaluated in terms of how could it be that our hearts are so dull and so sinful that we can be blind to his glory. This crowd appears to be captured by his glory. And all appears to be well, and yet all is not necessarily well. I mean, yes, this king is making a triumphant entry into the city of peace. But in just a week's time, the same king will face a bloody death. Many of the people now proclaiming, blessed is the king, will join in chorus to loudly make another proclamation. Crucify him. So what on earth happens between Palm Sunday and Good Friday? Let's read verses 39 and 40 again as we look to this king not only being unassuming and not only being mighty, but being a crucified king. It says in verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, the Pharisees are not convinced because they don't know who Jesus truly is. They hear people yelling king and they say, Hey, you need to tell them to be quiet. You're not a king. You're certainly not the king. See, here's the catch. The Pharisees don't know who Jesus really is, but neither does the crowd know 
who Jesus really is. Yeah, sure, the crowd heard of all the mighty acts and they saw the miracles and, they, and some even may have benefited from these demonstrations of power. And from all of that, they assumed one thing, that he was coming for a throne. But the, the throne they assumed was the wrong throne. You see, they assumed that he was coming for the throne of power in Rome. They assumed that his victory would be a worldly one, a political one, a natural one. Maybe they assumed that the signs and the wonders that he worked with his own hands would be the ones on display to overthrow Caesar. How many of these shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, do you think joined in the crowd's chant later on that week, crucify him, once they realized that he wasn't going to fulfill their dreams of political rule and natural reign? How many of these do you think shouted, we have no king but Caesar, once they realized that Jesus' kingdom would not be one of this world? You see, Jesus didn't come to be crowned through political aggression. He came to be crowned on an old rugged tree, and they didn't understand that. The road to victory for Christ was always intended to cross the intersection of suffering. But it's not just something that that, that, that they fail to understand, but, but oftentimes it is something that we fail to understand. How often do we stare at a moment like the moment that we're living in right now? COVID-19, coronavirus, and we ask ourselves, is Jesus really king? Does he really and truly reign over all things? Would the rocks truly cry out if, decla- if he declared them to? But to ask that question, to ask those questions, is to miss the mystery of the cross. See, in the mystery of the cross, we discover that Jesus doesn't ignore our suffering. He actually steps into our suffering. He demonstrates how victory will be accomplished through it. In the mystery of the cross, we discover that Jesus isn't dismissing death. No, instead, he is actually conquering death defeating death, and not just a natural death, but the eternal death, the one that we all deserve, the one that we will receive if we don't trust him as Lord and Savior, the eternal death in hell. You see, in the mystery of the cross, we discover that the enemies of sin and death aren't dealing a decisive blow to the king. No, instead, the king has dealt a decisive blow to them. Colossians chapter 2, for example, Paul writes this in verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal commands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over over them in him. Jesus takes the curse of sin, death, and suffering. What man received as a result of breaking God's perfect law in the very beginning. And he uses that very thing to deliver man from that very curse. And in so doing, listen to the language that Paul uses in Colossians 2. He disarms. He puts puts to open shame. He triumphs over all the rulers and authorities of the universe, both known and unknown. In other words, the king is crowned as ruler over all things 
through the cross. Sometimes our hope is that he will conquer all of our difficulties in this life. Sometimes our hope is that he will will swoop in and relieve us of all of our sufferings in this life. But see, family, those thrones are far too small. He came to take a seat on an eternal throne. And that work involves great mystery. That work involves riding in, not on a glorious steed at times, but that work oftentimes involves riding in on an unassuming donkey. Here's the hope that you can get up, as you, as you get up rather from the live stream this morning, here's the hope that you can carry with you, that your king reigns. King Jesus reigns. Through our sin struggles, King Jesus reigns. Through our hardship, King Jesus reigns. Through death, King Jesus reigns. Through the threat of an eternal death, an eternal suffering, an eternal hardship in hell, King Jesus reigns. Through the threat of COVID-19, coronavirus, King Jesus reigns. And you can take courage and confidence in that reality. That this king, the one who comes in on a donkey, is mighty to save. And his salvation has come through the very road of suffering. And if this is not your king, if Jesus is not your king, then here you have an invitation to enjoy this reign, not just in this life, but in a reign, a reign that is built for eternity, an eternal reign, you have the opportunity to join in and enjoy. How? How can I join in this reign? By trusting Jesus Christ with your life. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish eternally, but rather they shall have the everlasting life, eternal life. And so you have the opportunity to join in this reign. You have the opportunity to enjoy this reign by laying your life down, trusting Jesus Christ, putting your life in his hands, turning from the way of sin, saying no longer my way, but your way, God. This is how we join in this reign. And no matter how it looks in this life, no matter whether there's highs, lows, peaks, valleys, sickness, or health, coronavirus, or or prosperity, Jesus reigns. And we can take confidence that in the end, when all is said and done, we will reign with him. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you. We give you glory and honor. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die. But not only to die, but to raise from the grave victorious. We thank you that you sent your son to pay the costs for our sin and that all those who would trust him with their lives and turn from their life of sin would not perish eternally, but would have life eternally. 
Lord, we thank you that in your son we have a king, a king who reigns over all the universe, a humble king, but a mighty and sovereign king, a king who laid his own life down for our cause. Lord, help us cherish and savor this king. And for those who have yet to do so, Lord God, turn their hearts and affections towards you so that they would embrace Jesus as king. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we give you all the praise and we give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.